And please do keep your Bibles open at Exodus, Exodus 11, 12, and 13. Now, I don't think there's anything that movie directors love more than a good rescue story. Here's, here's the basic idea. Scene one, person in danger. Scene two, person in peril. Scene three, person in a situation that no normal human being could ever get out of. And scene four, enter the hero. I wonder how many movies you've seen just like that. Maybe Apollo 13. Maybe Saving Private Ryan. Recently, the Oscars have been absolutely littered with rescue movies. Just six years ago, in 2012, there was Argo. I wonder if you saw that. 60 US embassy officials taken hostage in Iran. And they are rescued. In 2013, there was Captain Phillips. Tom Hanks was the captain of the ship. And the ship is taken by pirates. But at the end, hashtag spoiler alert, they're rescued. And just last year, there was Dunkirk. You don't get a spoiler alert for that one. 340,000 allied troops stranded in France, rescued And all of those films are based on true stories. Hollywood doesn't make them up. There's enough real-life examples for them to use. Well, Exodus 11, 12, and 13 is another true rescue story. If you've been here over the last few weeks, then you'll know it. The Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for centuries. One pharaoh tried to wipe them out by killing all the baby boys. Another has increased their workload so much that it's too much for them to bear. The situation looks impossible. But we've also seen that God hears his people's cry and that he has promised to rescue his people. Last week, Daph showed us that God justly judges people who willfully disobey him. This evening, all that has happened so far comes to a head, and we're going to see two things. Firstly, we're going to see the people get rescued. And secondly, God will tell his rescued people to always remember their rescue. So firstly, God rescues his people. Just look at chapter 11, verse 1. God speaks to Moses and says, it's time. Let me read those verses. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. There's no question about it. It's a sure thing. The great rescue operation is about to take place. Do you know how far back God made this promise? All the way back in Genesis, not Exodus, Genesis 15. 
He promised Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and then they would be rescued. And not only that, but when they were rescued, they would leave the nation with great possessions. God here is restating that 600-year-old promise. He says, I will send one more judgment, and then not only are you going to be free, but you'll be plundering the Egyptians as you go. You see, this has always been the plan. If you were here last week, Daph said this, the first nine plagues haven't been strategies that didn't work. God isn't flummoxed when the frogs don't lead to rescue. He doesn't have to go away and have another brainstorming session to come up with something better and bigger than hailstones. No. Genesis 15, yes, but also back in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4 and Exodus 7, God has set out this very plan. He's totally in control. Flick back to Exodus 4, verse 21. Exodus 4, 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. So, I will kill your firstborn son. And that time has now come. Moses goes into Pharaoh in Exodus 11 verse 4 and he tells him that the tenth, final and most devastating plague is coming. Every firstborn in the land will die. From the greatest to the least. From Pharaoh's son to Pharaoh's servant's son. It'll be like nothing that has ever happened before or will ever happen again. Like some previous plagues, there will be a distinction made between the Israelites and the Egyptians. This plague will not touch the Israelites. The local stray won't even murmur. But Pharaoh, the stubborn ruler who refused to listen to God, who hardened his heart against God, who God then gave over to his own way, will be justly judged. And you can see that his humiliation will be complete when his own cabinet change allegiance and turn to Moses and bow down before him. Look toward the end of verse 8. Moses says, quite simply, after that, I will leave. The plan is sure. The scene is set. But God tells Moses and Aaron that the whole community of Israel have to do something. Follow with me the instructions that they're to carry out from verse 3. They're to choose a lamb. A lamb that's the right size to feed their family. They can double up with another family if they need to. And this lamb, oh, it's to be perfect. No defects, blemishes, spots, no bits missing, no marks, no scars. It's the best lamb they have. And four days later, they're to kill it slaughter it 
And, and they then have to catch the blood and then daub that blood on the door, or on the lintel and on the sides of their door frame of their front door. Then they're to take the lamb and they're to roast it, not boil it, not eat it raw, but roast it, every last bit of the lamb. And when they eat it, they have to eat it with bitter herbs and flatbread without any yeast in it. It all has to be eaten, the whole thing. And if anything is left over, it has to be completely burned up that night. As they eat, they have to be dressed with their coat on, tucked into the belt, their sandals on, and their staff in their hand. The meal is to be called the Passover. While the preparation for the meal is very methodical, the scene when it's being eaten is hardly a relaxed Sunday roast, is it? It's more like a pre-flight breakfast. You know the one, zipping up the suitcase with one hand while making sure that you've still got your, po- uh, your tickets in your pocket with the other. Everything's really carefully instructed, but with speed in mind. Roasting the meat is faster than boiling. Bitter herbs were the most common around and therefore the easiest to go out and find immediately. There's no time to prove your bread. What would Mary Berry say? Eat it in your running gear. Eat it all and eat it fast. We've actually got a brilliant opportunity in a couple of months' time to see what a Passover meal is like. David Moss on the 25th of March is going to host a Passover presentation as he has done in the past. Please do bear that in mind as we come up to Easter. But but what have all these instructions got to do with their, their rescue? And what have they got to do with the impending plague that's coming? We'll look down at verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. God himself is coming to Egypt and he's going to justly judge those who have enslaved, abused, mistreated and killed his son, Israel. The end of verse 12 there should make us think back to Moses and the burning bush back in Exodus 3. I am the Lord. I am who I am. But for those who listen to what God has said, As God passes through Egypt, he will come to the houses of the Israelites and he will see the blood on the doorframe of their house. And when God sees that blood, instead of killing the firstborn son, he will pass on. You see, as it says in verse 30, every house will be touched by death. It will either be the death of the firstborn son or the death of the lamb. This perfect lamb is a sacrifice, 
a, a substitutionary sacrifice whose blood is shed so the firstborn Israelites do not die under God's just judgment. That's the only way for the Israelites to be saved and the only way for the Israelites to be rescued. Moses and Aaron go to the elders and pass on the instructions. Look at the end of verse 27. The people worship God and obey what he said. The perfect lamb is killed. The blood is shed. It's put on the doorframe. The meat is cooked. The meal is eaten. And then they wait. I'm a firstborn son. My dad's a firstborn son. My son is a firstborn son. Can you imagine that weight? As an Israelite, you were trusting the word of God. You were trusting that this terrible final act of judgment would not fall on you because you'd painted blood on your front door. And trusting that the reaction of the Egyptians in their devastation would be to say, please leave and take all of my jewelry while you're going. But God is sovereign, and God's plan is sure, and God's word is true, and God rescues his people. Look at verse 29. See how it all unfolds exactly as God said it would? At midnight, God passes through Egypt, but passes over Israel. The firstborn Egyptians are killed from the greatest to the lowest. The wailing was like nothing heard before or since. Pharaoh immediately tells the Israelites to leave, and too little, too late, he asks for a blessing. And the Egyptians tell the Israelites to leave as quickly as they can. Why? Look at verse 33. For otherwise, we will all die. It's all so desperately sad. God graciously gave Pharaoh chance after chance after chance. But back in chapter 5, verse 2, when Moses first comes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Well, he knows now. He knows the God of Israel. He knows that he is not a God, and that God is the one true God. And he has to obey him, and he has to let Israel go. It's a terrible scene. But then imagine the joy of the Israelites. 600,000 men with women and children. 430 years of slavery ended free at last. And, and look at verse 35. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Yesterday, 
They were being beaten because they couldn't meet their quota of bricks. And today, they've been rescued by God. They're free and they're richer than they could possibly imagine. What an incredible rescue story. Movie makers love this one too. Wikipedia tells me that there have been 12 films made in the last 90 years about this story. But you know what? As great as it is, and it is great, this rescue is only a shadow. It's only a signpost. It's great, but it pales into insignificance compared to the incomparable wonder and glory of the great rescue story. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul identifies what Jesus did on the cross with the Passover. Jesus Christ was the firstborn son of God, the perfect lamb of God, without a blemish, spot, or stain. He lived a perfect life totally without sin. He, he was taken out on Passover, the same day as this lamb was, and he was slaughtered on a cross, sacrificed. His blood was shed and poured out, and by trusting in his blood, we are covered as he takes God's just judgment on our behalf as a substitutionary sacrifice. As the wonderful song that we heard this morning during communion said, he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. God sees his blood, the perfect lamb of God's blood, and we are rescued from sin and death and hell to freedom with unmeasurable eternal riches. Jesus Christ is the ultimate, once-for-all, substitutionary, sacrificial Passover lamb. Maybe tonight you've, you've heard about the Passover for the very first time. Well, its purpose, as I've just said, is to point you forward to what Jesus did on the cross. Look at what some of the Egyptians did there in in Exodus 12, verse 38. It says, many other people went up with them, not just the Israelites. This was part of God's aim all along too. Back in chapter 7, God said that by the time the people were rescued, the Egyptians would know that he was the Lord. They all now knew that he was the Lord, but some of them knew better than others. Some saw all that had happened and decided that even though they weren't slaves in Egypt, they too needed to be rescued by such a great, awesome, powerful, justly judging, gracious, rescuing God. And they left their home, they left Egypt, and became part of God's people. You too can be rescued tonight. 
come to the cross and shelter under the blood of Jesus Christ and be truly free, not from slavery in Egypt, but from spiritual slavery to sin and to its eternal effects of death and hell. You can become free in Christ and become immeasurably rich as part of his rescued people forever. If, if you are a Christian tonight, if you've been rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ, well, I hope that this, small, uh, this evening you're seeing afresh how the Passover points us forward. I hope that that has warmed your heart. I hope that you're thankful that you've been rescued. But this passage gives you something specific to do. And that's the second point. God tells his rescued people to always remember that they've been rescued. As we had our Bible reading earlier, which was great, did you notice how often the people were told to remember? There's five different, section, uh, five different sections across the three chapters that are all about remembering. Why do you think God is so persistent in telling them to remember? That you say, okay, that's an e- easy question, because he wants them to remember. <laughs> yes. But also because he knows that they will forget. God knows that as time passes, as the feelings and realities of what has happened fade, they'll forget. And so he graciously provides three different ways for the Israelites to remember their rescue. As some of you know, I'm I'm currently at, at Bible college. I'm currently learning both Greek and Hebrew. I don't know why I'm smiling. I'm supposed to have learned 850 words across the two languages so far. Did you see that I said supposed to have? 850 words in two different languages when I can't barely speak English. The only way I can try and remember them is by using a memory device. I have to come up with a story or a scene related to the word. The more ridiculous, the better. Maybe some of you have done something similar to try and remember things. So here's a few examples. In Hebrew, there's a word, ach. It's a very phlegmy language. Sorry, John. uh, Perfect for scousers. Uh, I don't have a clue what I'm saying, but I sound really good saying it. Ach means brother. So I just think back to all the fights I had with my brother when I was a kid. Ach! The Hebrew word, this is absolutely true, yayin means wine. So you can imagine that I just think of yayin with a, a pint because he's, you know, manly. A pint of wine, <laughs> Sam Allardyce. Daf even makes an appearance. The word radaf means to pursue or chase. <laughs> well, Daf's a little bit posh, isn't he? So I imagine Daf chasing after me, saying, Ra. <laughs> That's the only way that I can remember any of these words, and you can believe me when I say that it's incredibly motivating to sit in an exam hall imagining Daf chasing you. Well, God essentially gives his rescued people living, breathing, real, solid memory devices so that their rescue sticks in their mind and can't be forgotten. 
Let's go all the way back to chapter 12, verse 14. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. See, the Passover meal isn't just something that they do once. It's something that they keep on doing repeatedly, annually, ongoing, forever. It's a commemoration and a celebration. It's so important that God tells them there to remember even before the rescue has taken place. As the passage was read out, it might have seemed like it was interrupting the flow a little bit. After verse 12 and 13, we just want to know what happens next. But instead, we get seven verses on how to remember what's going to happen. But that's not interrupting the flow. It's central to the story. Being rescued is the event, but remembering is the command. They're to remember for seven days. On the first day, they reenact the night of rescue itself, remembering what it was like. They do it exactly. And then for seven days afterwards, they eat unleavened bread, bread without any yeast in it. God's memory devices, you can smell them and taste them and touch them and feel them and experience them and live them. They're bound to help them remember. In verse 42, in summing up the whole rescue, it says, because the Lord kept vigil or watch, because the Lord kept watch that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night, all the Israelites are to keep watch to honor the Lord for the generations to come. And from that verse to the end of the passage that we read out, it's all about remembering. God sets out some restrictions for Passover in verses 43 to 50. All of Israel, the whole community, are to celebrate it, while uncircumcised foreigners, any visitors you have staying and any temporary contractors, can't. It's an exclusive celebration, but not exclusive in that it's only for the Israelites. No, just look at verse uh, 48. Anyone can eat it as long as they're circumcised, as long as they've identified themselves as one of God's people. So the Egyptians who have just left Israel with the Israelites will be able to be circumcised and remember the night of rescue. And in chapter 13, God gives the Israelites another memory device, the consecration and redemption of the firstborn son. Every firstborn son is to be given to God. So are the firstborn males of the livestock. The animals are to be sacrificed. And in Numbers chapter 3, we learn that the children are to be bought back. They're to be redeemed with a payment of five shekels to God as an offering. What's that all about? Well, in asking them to do this, God is helping them to remember that the firstborn are his. He rescued them, so they are his. The rescued people belong to the rescuer. They were saved in Egypt by God's provision in the Lamb and are rightly God's people and so have to be bought back at a price. So there are three specific ways that we see in which the people are to remember their rescue. Uh, 
Firstly, every year on the 14th day of the first month, they're to celebrate Passover together. In the same way as it was eaten on that first night, coats on and bags packed. For the next week, they're to eat unleavened bread. And lastly, throughout the year, any time there's a firstborn, they are to remember their rescue by redeeming the firstborn. And for the Israelites, these signs were given, yes, to help them remember, but also so that their children and future generations would ask them questions about what they were doing. Can you see that in chapter 12, verse 26? And chapter 13, verse 8? And chapter 13, verse 14? You can imagine it, can't you? Daddy, why did you tell us to eat really fast last night when every other night you tell us to slow down and chew our food? Or mummy, why are we having flatbread again today? And you get to bend down or, or pick them up and say, oh son, oh darling, I've got a great rescue story to tell you. Isn't God gracious? He graciously gives them ways of remembering. He gives them ways of remembering what he's done before he's even rescued them so that they don't forget. And he graciously gives them a way of remembering that intrigues future generations to ask about the great rescue. I think the challenge for us this evening is that while we know that Christ is our Passover lamb, we do so often forget it. We forget what he's done for us. The memory fades. We lose the wonder of the cross. We need a reminder too. We have so many ways to remember our rescue. God has given us his word We can read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. We can see the many passages throughout Scripture that point us to the cross. Like back in Genesis 22, when Abraham's firstborn son, Isaac, is rescued because God provides a sacrificial lamb or ram. Or later on in Exodus 32, Moses offers himself to be blotted out instead of the Israelites. And as we read the whole of Scripture, we can see God's redemption plan, history itself, progressing towards the cross, across its pages. We can pray. We can thank God for what he's done, and we can ask him to help us remember. And again, graciously, he will. And we can help one another by pointing each other to the cross, by encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ to remember that we are rescued people. But the primary way for us to remember is the one the Lord Jesus graciously gave us. It's another remembrance meal. He gave us a remembrance that we too can touch and can taste a way to commemorate until he comes back again. The Lord Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. It's a meal. It's an ongoing commemoration. It too was instituted 
before Jesus died on the cross, before the rescue took place. It helps us remember that Christ was slaughtered for us, and it helps us remember that it's his blood that saves us from the just judgment of God. We heard the words of Jesus this morning, but let me read them out again. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are to eat and drink remembering what Christ has done for us, remembering that he is our Passover lamb. So as we close, we have to ask ourselves some some questions, maybe some tough questions. Do we remember our rescue every day? It is the greatest rescue ever. Do we remember it? Do we look forward to communion? Do we get to church on those two Sundays a month, eagerly anticipating the chance, the opportunity, the gracious opportunity that we have to remember again what God has done for us? Or are we more worried that the potential extra 10 minutes at the end of the service might mean that the chicken's burnt or we get to bed a little bit late? Do we thank God for communion? Do we appreciate that he has condescended to give us a tangible, helpful, solid way of remembering what he has done for us? Or do we take it for granted? We've done it hundreds of times and no doubt we'll do it hundreds more. Do we remember our rescue in such a way that it makes future generations look at us and ask us, I wonder what that's about. I've asked myself these questions this week. I I don't think I've ever seen before how gracious God is in giving us communion to help us remember. And I'm motivated to remember what Christ has done for me in a way that will engage my son to ask me, what's that all about? I pray that tonight we get a real sense of what it is to remember Christ's sacrifice for us. I pray that we will see a greater glory in our rescue as we remember it. And in so doing, remember the rescuer himself in a way that leads to worship, praise, and wonder. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for this amazing rescue that we can read of in Exodus. We thank you so much for the way that you planned out exactly what was going to happen. But Father, we thank you so much more for your son. We thank you that the cross was the culmination of your plan to bring us to yourself. We fall down 
and we worship you. Father, I pray for any here who do not yet know you, who are not yet covered by the blood of your Son. Father, who are still facing your just judgment, that they would run and shelter under your Son's blood. That Christ would stand in their place and soak up your wrath for them. And Father, for those of us who do know you, may we remember, may we remember better. Father, help these things not to fade from our minds. Help us to have at the forefront of our life every day the cross. May we truly be cross-centered. In your name, amen.